Before we get started, this episode of the Food Grower Podcast is sponsored by Direct Plants Limited, and specifically their amazing range of polytunnels. We use these strong and affordable tunnels on both Jack's Patch and Fanfield Farm, and we love them. Direct Plants manufacture the tunnels themselves so that you can buy your polytunnel direct from the manufacturer, and not just any manufacturer, but from growers too, so that they really understand what you need. These traditional high-quality polytunnels are available in a range of sizes to fit your growing needs and they're manufactured here in the UK in Norfolk. We're delighted to bring you a brilliant 10% off the entire range at directplants.co.uk. Simply head over there and use the code FOODGROWER at checkout. That's FOODGROWER, all one word, no spaces, at directplants.co.uk. This episode is also brought to you by Natural Grower. Natural Grower's award-winning liquid fertiliser, plant feed and soil conditioner is made entirely from maize. It's naturally rich in nitrogen, potash, phosphate and other trace elements that plants and vegetables love. And it's approved by the Soil Association, Vegan Society and Biodynamic Association. The concentrated natural fertiliser can be poured around the base of plants, whilst the plant feed and soil conditioner can be mixed into the soil or used as a mulch on the surface as a long-term, slow-release fertiliser on all outdoor and indoor plants. Both Jack and I have been using the Natural Grower products this year and have seen amazing results and we have a fantastic 15% off the entire Natural Grower range for you. Simply go to naturalgrower.co.uk and enter foodgrower15 at checkout. Welcome to the Food Grower Podcast, the podcast that tells the story, highlights the techniques and talks tactics with food growers from all around the world. From market gardeners to allotment holders, field farmers to urban farmers, we want this podcast to inspire you to grow food or help you on your already existing food empire. I'm Chris from Fanfield Farm. I'm Jack from Jack's Patch. And with this episode of the podcast, we wanted to do something a little bit different. We've done one before, but it's come to the very end of the growing season for both of us. So we wanted to do another Ask Us episode where we talk about um, your questions. We, we put the answers to your questions. But it has been a great season of the podcast. This is going to be the last episode of the season. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with even more great guests. But firstly, Jack, how are you, mate? And, and how have you enjoyed doing these podcasts this season? Yeah, good, Chris. Um, to be honest, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think me and you have both spoken after each podcast and it's inspired us to change certain things in how we grow. Uh, for example, whether that's speaking to other market gardeners and how they see the world um, and farming uh, to people that are growing herbs. And we've seen how well herbs have done in the garden when the annuals have failed this year um, and multiple other things. It's just been nice to chat to other growers. We all see the see it differently. We've all got our niches and I feel we can all learn from that. And we're learning as well as everyone listening as well. Yeah, man, it's just been, I think, solidarity is the word for me. It's just been like sometimes, even off the mic before we start recording, just being like able to have a little bit of a moan about leather jackets or have a chat about some of those things. And we did a solidarity episode as well, just being able to all be on the same page and chat to growers. And I really appreciate the time people have given up because we did a rather stupid thing of starting a growing podcast in the middle of the growing season um, mm. when no one's got any time. But plenty of great people did give up time and we're coming off the back of just having done a podcast with JM Fortier as well, which was a real highlight for me. It was, it was really some great content in there that really just made me feel um, reinvigorated for the new season already. Um, and it's only November. So 
Yeah, I'll be re-listening to that one <laughs> come <laughs> come April, May. Uh, but it's just that nice boost as well, isn't it? The fact that the, the calibre of a grower JM is um, to come on the podcast. And, and uh, we had a chat this week, Sam, we've hit um, half a million minutes. Mm. Um, that That's great, man. It's just unbelievable <laughs> how... I mean, to be honest, this is this is really fun for us to speak to other growers for an hour because if I'm not if I'm not on here doing it, I'm boring other people doing it. Yeah. So it's cool to record it <laughs> and um, yeah, and, sh- and share that with other people as well. What do you think? Um, one of your biggest take homes has been from the podcast we've done. One thing that sort of really changed your either your view or your season or for next season. Um. To, to be honest, I, I do, I would say um, herbs and probably changing to a CSA model as well. Mm. Um, it, it's more the support I'd like to get um, off the back of uh, Tim's one, like just working with the CSA network and getting that support um, would be amazing. And then I've incorporated more herbs off the back of Earthlight as well. Um mainly because I just saw how well they were doing when the garden goes to pot, whether it's too much rain and I can imagine too much heat, those plants have took their roots down deep and no matter what, they're they're surviving and the bugs ain't eating them as well. So it's just that extra little bit of the garden that you know it has your back when the rest of it is kind of not going to plan. So I... It's definitely uh, shift my focus this year. Um, my, my focus have been shift pretty much um, quite quite a lot this year. Third year should be a year where I feel like you should be excelling, but it's kind of we've been pulled back because of the weather um, mm. and blight and little things like that. Um, but yeah, for me, there's I think I think herbs for me definitely. Um, and then yeah, looking at CSA model going forward, which a lot of the other market gardeners we've got we've had um, have also adopted. Oh, and I just want to sh- also compost gaming, uh, just <laughs> stepping up the compost sheer, um, being inspired by Michael as well. But I mean, I've taken honestly for every podcast taken something from everyone and I'll re-listen to them again and again and again um, and there's always something else that I'll keep finding because each grower is growing something that I'm not and I'm like I want to grow that as well so how about how about you Chris what what have you taken away yeah I couldn't agree more with with what you've just said man I, I can genuinely walk around my farm now um, and point at things and say that was because of that episode like I've got a run of herbs bang literally next to where I'm recording now from the Earthlight episode, um, there's been things I've built inspired by Danny's episode. Um, there are a perennial edibles block now from the Plot 26A Angie's episode, um, which just so much. I think every single episode I've taken something from, especially Michael's. I've got a big compost set up now, and they've all been inspired by the chats that we've had with all the different people. Um, even trying trying some crazy stuff, trying to grow a kiwi plant after talking to Ginger Grows and some of the stuff they're managing to grow up. She's managing to grow up north in their, their colder climate. So, yeah, I've been inspired by every single one. I think a big thing that's changed my sort of mindset lately and has, has made me think quite a lot about is that this, this last year we had two members of staff on the farm, which was a huge help, but it was a real shift for me in 
going from just being able to farm with my headphones into having to manage people. And then we have volunteers. I know you do as well, Jack, and you have to manage them. So that's something that I've had to get re get used to. And in the JM 48 episodes, he talked a lot about that and talked about a lot of um, mechanisms and, and procedures and things that they use on the farm that he is on firm, the capital Tomp, which, um, sound amazing and and he's created a really amazing place there for people to grow so though some of those things i mean i was scribbling notes down throughout him talking just of those procedures because they're tried and tested and they sounded amazing so there's something i'm definitely going to try and it's it's made me think more positively about having people on the farm more often if that makes sense because we live on the farm it's sometimes difficult to constantly have people here but um actually with some of those procedures in place it, it's a no-brainer now so yeah it's it's been an inspiring um yeah inspiring runner podcast really um but just for people listening, it doesn't mean that we're off for a long period of time. Um, we're taking a little break of, of a week and a half, two weeks, and then we'll be back. And some of the guests we've got lined up are amazing. So um, it's, it's we haven't run out of guests. We've got some big, big <laughs> names coming along. We've got some people doing things different. Um, just more of the same, really, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I think we want to touch uh, base on every type of growing. Um which uh, is going to be super interesting. And even if people don't listen to each episode, there might be one that sticks out. Let's say uh, we speak to a rooftop grower and, mm. and that, that's the thing that sticks out to them be like, oh, listen to that episode and maybe more episodes off the back of that. But I like the fact that we could talk to microgreens, mushrooms, um, uh, like more allotment tiers, um, community gardens, uh, more market gardeners. Everyone has their own style, which I find so cool not mm. not one model's the same everyone's fighting different battles so I, I do think it's an endless supply of interesting people we've um we've got potentially um and I, just before i, I finish that i, I want to say i'm inspired by your uh, french accent in the, <laughs> in the uh, jm4 <laughs> in, in the jm41 I, I mean i was gonna say something and i was like oh better not um but yeah you nailed it and you that got french gcse wasn't a waste of time eh? i thought i genuinely That's thought it, i could man. only say i play football je joue your foot but uh, apparently i can still just about pull off the accent um oh, yeah no I, I was that was probably made my ear he said my accent wasn't too bad so uh i'll take that <laughs> so um let's get into it then so we've been asking on our instagram um accounts across all three of our, the accounts yours mine and the food grower academy account um for our listeners questions and we've got a nice list here of, of really great questions actually thanks everyone who sent them in um special special shout out to tamberlane.art on instagram who sent us a lot of questions but they're all great so we're going to cover them all um but shout out to everyone who sent us a question it's really great yeah, so we're going to kick it off. The first one we're going to kick off at, at Pete's surname. Um, is there a place for technology in the market garden? Um, sensors, automation, alerts. What's your thoughts on that, Chris? 
Yeah, I well, it, I think it depends on your scale, um, but I really do think it is something that we should be thinking about in future years in market gardening. I don't think it's something that if it's your first go, your first acre or two or three, depends on your scale, as I said, but that we should be thinking about from day one. But what we, we what I've definitely found is there are a lot of repetitive tasks like watering um, that. I really feel like we could save a lot of time and a lot of effort and therefore a lot of brain space um, on the farm with putting certain automations on that. Um, and that would be, yeah, timing automations, sensors. Um, and then there's definitely places for things like alerts as well. If you've got a cold store um, and making sure that you've got alerts for if the temperature drops in there because there's risk of spoiling your crop. I think there is a really big place for some of that stuff. And the only way you should be thinking about it early on in market gardening is if that will influence how you put in your infrastructure. And what I mean by that is we've just put in a lot of um, water pipe. We've put water pipe um, to every single one of our growing blocks. And we decided to not just do it as one rail of taps basically but to put an individual supply to each of the blocks back to a tap at the pump and the reason we've done that is that then we can replace each one of those taps with say a timer in the future or i don't know a, a switch that's available on bluetooth or a sensor so we can actually yeah we could program it like the bellagio in in vegas and just have like block one sprinklers then block three and then block two but it's not the point of it but yeah so we couldn't afford to put that technology in but it didn't seem right for us to put like pipe in that wouldn't allow us to do that in the future um so that's the way i'd say thinking about it for now um but what about you man i know you've looked at sort of automation in greenhouses and things haven't you yeah, I just want to say everything you said there was brilliant. Um, and you've kind of future-proofed it as well by, mm. by having that thought there that maybe in time I can cut that in. Um, so, yeah, really well said there, mate, and Thank totally you. agree. I don't think it should be at the forefront of your mind when you start in a garden, but if you are starting, like, in the case, I'm on my own. So I always have to, like, when I go away for a week or a couple of days, I'm always worried who's going to be watering it. Um, are this are the uh, overhead irrigation on in the greenhouse to water the nursery plants or whatever? Um, and I have to make sure that's all set up. But I would love, for example, um, in the polytunnel, I know you can get stuff that's attached to your tap and you can program it and then mm. you could have like drip irrigation on um, at certain times of the day and that could be run off solar. So there is something definitely I'm thinking of uh, going ahead. Really interesting. I believe AI will even come into it at some point, but mm. I do love the hu human part of farming that you are completely out there touching the plants. It's like you're building a relationship with your farm. And I think there's a Chinese proverb saying there's no better um, fertilizer than the gardener's shadow, meaning like just being being there, or, or just being there, tending to it, like you being observant of your whole place. Um, so yeah, I think that's yeah. I think we've touched base on all of that really. But it's so it is a good question. It's something that is going to be more and more in on topic as farming goes on down the line. Yeah, definitely. And and I think that there is a limit to it. I think that, I mean, I've seen um, 
prototypes of basically runners running up and down a, like a, a set of mechanical runners were basically an AI bot that runs up and down and it will spray fertilizer based on a quick poke in the soil and testing what's in there and it can plant and everything. But I don't think that's the way to go because it's going to disconnect us from our food even further. But if there is technology, as we've just said, that can make us, yeah, remove some of the repetitive jobs, meaning that we can farm for longer without our backs going or without going mental because we've had to water seven times a day and forget to put the sprinklers on, all those sorts of things, then then that definitely has a place for me. And then I've seen people have fans um, on their polytunnels that come on at a certain temperature to have air coming in. That's definitely there. Um, and even automated doors on polytunnels and things like that. So yeah, it's definitely got a place if it can help us with our brain space, but it's certainly, in my opinion, shouldn't be replacing people or people's shadow as that proverb said. So yeah, absolutely. So next one is from at Josie's home. Um, I have a slug somewhere in my greenhouse. How can I draw him out? It's a good question. It is a good question. As something I've been, uh, it's close to home for me this year because <laughs> they probably ate fifty percent of everything I had. Mm. Um, there's a slug somewhere in the garden. I mean, beer traps uh, yeah. always quite. Um, that they they could. Someone told me they can smell beer up to like twenty meters or something ridiculous. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's definitely something they're going to be attracted to. And once they're in there, they're just going to drink themselves into an early death, unfortunately for them. But um, it's something you can just instead of it focusing on the plants, it's going to focus on that that smell of the yeast and and go for that. And that's how you're probably going to get them. You probably don't want to attract even more slugs and snails to it. But the the best best prevention for it is just if you've got a greenhouse, don't have like a hundred pots under your potting table just like unstacked and looking messy they love it that is like a perfect home for them so just give it a good good clean out and it's that time of year where you should be clearing out your greenhouse and things like that and just getting ready for spring and so you're going to find that little fella yeah man that's a really good tip it was seed trays for me i was finding like because underneath my propagating benches i just had stacks of empty seed trays and I thought, ah, I've had a really good clear out. I thought there's not, if I, <laughs> yeah, I thought if I, it was there, I was going to find it. I'd looked everywhere, but yeah, there was loads of them just hiding underneath in the gaps between the cells, just open it. even stacks and stacks. You're going down five trays and there were people that yeah, there were slugs, not people, uh, slugs hiding in amongst there. So yeah, a really good tidy up is a good place to go. And beer traps is a good shout. Um, and if you don't drink beer or it's too expensive, um, get down the pub and they will probably be able to provide you with the drips from their drip trays from when they're spilling and pouring pints and stuff so sure. you're nice and cheap um but yeah i can't i can't really add much more to that other than to feel your pain as well because it's been the same on this farm <laughs> yeah so third one um tamberlane.art um budget allotment in from scratch free cheap environmentally friendly stuff to get started um mm. yeah man i always think personally um that you should be looking at uh, being resourceful when you've got an allotment um whether that is upcycling pallets wood um it definitely turns you into a skip diver because you start seeing <laughs> yeah. all this like gold coming in skips like pvc pipe and yeah free wood and uh, bubble wrap 
and things like that. All the things that you need on an allotment site that should be sh- you shouldn't have to pay for. Let's say that it's this stuff's free. And I'm, I'm, I think Facebook Marketplace is also becoming a great resource for that as well. Um, building sites are amazing. I used to be an electrician pre-farming and used to just walk around going, I would love this, I would love this, I would love this <laughs> if this site was closer to my house. So I would always say start, it shouldn't be paying for much, just start with a resourceful, zero-waste, environmentally friendly mindset and, and it will get you far, I think. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, pallets was a big one for me. Um, And we found that actually, if you just drive around industrial estates, um, people chuck them out the front for people to pick up. Certainly around here in Sussex, they just leave them on the curbside so you can go and pick up cars full. If you do a day of them, you've got plenty of of free timber. We've used pallets to hold up water tanks, used them to... I've seen the allotment that used to be next to mine when we had an allotment fenced off their whole area with pallets and it looked amazing they're just mm. really gone to town um the other couple of sort of environmentally sort of friendly or certainly free things is wood chip get in touch with a tree surgeon they are looking for places in city centers to dump wood chip um for free so that was a massive thing when we found that out not just here but on allotments as well um and normally if you speak to whoever runs the allotments together you can get a couple of you to to get in together and get a full truckload of, of wood chip dropped and then work to clear it all from the entrance or whatever. And yeah, it was a game changer for, for us. And then we've also had um, landscape gardeners just being able to drop off topsoil. Like mm. they've um, like they've had to clear an area because someone wanted decking put in and there's just a load of decent topsoil there. Yeah. It might have turf in it or whatever, but that's been a huge resource when we've had our allotment and it was a resource on the farm for garden areas here as well. So um, they would definitely be like top three tips for, for free stuff. It's out there <laughs> mostly like you can generally, if you have enough patience, you can get, um, get anything for free. And I think Danny from Lawson's market garden um, is a really good example of that, that he built a greenhouse, which I copied Um out of completely free materials. It's a double glazed greenhouse with double glazed windows and doors. The timber was pallet wood and, and other timber roof tiles that they managed, uh, roof panels that got off a of Facebook marketplace, whole thing's free. And I copied it, copied the design, <laughs> built it here. But then I was like, oh, just out of interest, it's three and a half meters squared. So just out of interest, how much is a three and a half meters square double glazed greenhouse? And it's over two grand. Wow. I was like, wow, then this was free. And that was just by ringing up a double glazing salesman, a fitter, and just saying, you ever get any windows you chuck out? He was like, yeah, every day. Wow. So, yeah, there's loads out there, but that would definitely be some of the ones I, I'd highlight. They've definitely helped me over the years. Yeah. No, that that's amazing, man. Just going back to just getting me a thought of my uh, greenhouse on my allotment site was um, – timber frame completely free timber but 1000 plastic bottles uh, oh that was cool that was uh, one of the first posts i think i saw of yours back before we knew each other i was like that is seriously cool Mm. yeah just all strung up on like bamboo canes basically to create a greenhouse yeah so you just like so each line you had to make sure that the bottles were the same brand so whether that was like volvic or evian or whatever Mm. and then you cut just so when you cut the bottom of the bottle, um, it slipped onto the other bottle, but there was a bamboo uh, yeah. cane running through it. And then you just stapled it 
top and bottom of the timber frame and you just made like just panels pretty much of them um and it's still going strong today like it survived so many storms <laughs> if you just you've got to build it quite well mm. but people are like, oh it's going to be rattling around you but you just push it in tight um you, if you could you've got to do a good job of it um for sure but um yeah it works it has that geothermal effect because it's trapping the air in between the bottom and warming that up as well mm. um so it's really bizarre how good it works it just mainly plants just want to be out of wind um but it, it, it's like a definite temperature difference in there for sure but it just takes that wind off the plants and it was just like a real real talking point um mm. and i think every school should do that because yeah. it'll get the kids towards growing but also towards recycling as well so they're all involved they'll be like oh they will want to take bottles to school to add to it um so something for the future for sure i think just walking around allotments you can see things like that you can see little innovations from like previous generations like i remember wanting to get some things to keep pigeons we're eating all of our soft fruit and our allotment and i was thinking oh should i buy some bird scarers or buy this and the allotment next to me just basically had old plastic water bottles and they had just cut like little fins out of the side almost and put them upside down on a bamboo cane so the little fins would act as like windmill so oh. that it would catch those little things it would spin round, and then that movement or that yeah noise of the bottle going around on a bamboo cane would scare the pigeons away i was like just walking around allotment sites you'll see loads of little things like that and once you start thinking along those lines you won't be able to unsee them and you'll want to copy them all <laughs> yeah definitely definitely yep so the, i see it just be resourceful so this one's little south sea garden um on instagram now i'm hoping this might be um South Sea as in I used to live down that way. I'm from Southampton, so it's not too far away. I used to live in South Sea, but it might not be. <laughs> but if it is, hi, I know, I know roughly where you are. Um, is it possible to grow decent food in a small north facing garden with very little experience? Um, there is definitely shade tolerant crops, mm. um, but I would make sure that you need some sun definitely need some sun um, but it's also about capturing the heat from the sun which are f so if you've got like say there's like a brick wall for example um then you can like the brick will harness the energy from the sun i think if you paint it isn't it if you paint it white um it will like it'll harness it even more um, but it's just the heat will emanate out of the bricks long before the sun's gone so mm. if you did grow something climbing up the wall then um like for example beans or tomatoes even though tomatoes would be hard in a north face but those bricks are emanating the heat so that can also go towards soil. You could have like a black tarp down on the soil or just make sure that your soil is a like nice, dark, rich color. So it's just like really getting a lot of heat. Mm. Um, that, that would be my thinking, but I'll just, there is a really cool infographic on Instagram or Pinterest, just type in shade tolerant crops and you, you'll find a little infographic of really good ones that you could plant in a garden that is north facing. Yeah, and there's plenty there that, that prefer a little bit of shade, so they'll probably do quite well. And little, little things you can do as well, I think I got this off of Pinterest, was um, 
we wanted to grow strawberries, but I had a north facing garden with six foot fence all around. And I actually ended up growing the strawberries in old milk containers hanging on the top of the rail of the fence line. Yeah, so right. they weren't getting shade, but they were getting sun as much as possible because they were right up there with the, with the fences. Um, and also just a note, I know that north facing gets a really bad rep, but it depends what's around you. Cause if you're growing in the middle of a four acre field, it doesn't matter what way it faces, essentially, <laughs> because yeah. there's nothing to shade you. If it's in a garden with houses all around, um, then it then it's going to cause more of a problem. But um, north facing gets a bad old rap, but it definitely depends what's in the way of, the, of that north and, and yeah. blocking the sun. Um, little things like when we we had a house that. Um, used to get really bad winds from one direction, but that's the way the sun came. So we actually ended up replacing six foot fence panels with two, three foot ones, one on top of the other. And then when it was a really good sunny day, we just used to lift the top one out. So it gets much nice. sun onto the veg patch as possible. Um, oh, that's yeah. clever. Yeah. Little ones. I mean, it was a fairly pain in the backside task to go yeah. and lift three fence panels out each day but it was it was worth it and it added a nice view the other side so i got to look at something nice but there you I go think, i do think you mentioned something good about the the milk cartons there on top of the fence and it's probably to grow more stuff vertically as well mm. that's probably going to catch more sunlight um hopefully so yeah there's there is loads of uh tips and techniques to grow vertically so maybe maybe that also yeah just trying to have a little think yeah but I, I think what we've said there pretty much covers it actually and there are there are a lot of crops as well if you look into go back to the angie episode plot 26a perennial edibles and the perennial plants like that they're pretty shade tolerant they grow through you look at things like good king henry which some people consider a weed but has two edible parts to it that grows through all kinds of shade it grows through all kinds of bad conditions and still survives and thrives so some of those um, more perennial perennial edibles can really um fill those shady gaps as well definitely definitely right on to the next question um at vix sussex garden what do you find more successful direct sowing or sowing in seed cells uh cells for me but i wonder if i'm doing it wrong <laughs> It's a good question. It's one that's quite close to my heart because for me on a smaller, like when you've only got a limited amount of space, and when I say smaller, I know I've got a fair bit of space here, but if you compare that to like conventional agriculture or tens of hundreds of acres, um, you couldn't seed sell everything. But when you've got a small amount and you go, right, that bed needs to be full and not have any gaps in it for me to be able to make a decent amount of money on it or for me to make sure I've got enough food from it, etc. Seed sales is normally the way to go for me because I can make sure I've got enough that I've grown to a decent plug size and give them the best chance to make sure that bed is always full. Um, direct sowing is something I struggle with, but, and, and I think I will until we've improved the soil here. Um, but there are certain things you can't not. I mean, we have to do carrots, radishes, parsnips, being three of them that we direct sow here and having a really good cedar makes all the difference, I think. Yeah, definitely. In, a, in an allotment scale or whatever, um, I would definitely say uh, transplant everything except what Chris just said. Um, yeah, your carrots, your parsnips, 
uh, Radish as well. They always seem to do better when they've got an undisturbed tap route, which mm. um, which is super important because they're pushing that down first, and that's going to give you that like nice straight carrot. You don't want it hitting the bottom of the seed cell and then going at an angle because you're not going to get an optimal uh, bit of growth and it doesn't want to be moved anyway. Um, so it's a bit of a mix of both, but I would say majority I would transplant. Um, mm. Just And then you you know your numbers then. If that whole crop fails, so um, sowing it direct, um, you've lost it. You should always have... Um, when you're transplanting out, it's a little bit stronger. It's a little bit, it's going to get eaten less by slugs, even because I think they just prefer the the younger leaves, don't they, when you direct mm. sow stuff out. Um, so, yeah, just cover yourself and you're doing it wrong. Don't, don't, don't doubt yourself. You're doing it right. Yeah, yeah, definitely not doing it wrong there. Um, I wish I could do sales for everything, but then I also wish it was quicker and easier to transplant out. So I just want the best of both worlds, apparently. <laughs> Uh, next one is from at underscore T underscore smart. A great question. What's your top three tips for starting a commercial market garden? Damn. I'll let you take this one first, man. Uh, <laughs> um, great, great question. Um, I think it's so what one thing definite um, is like no, like do your market research so know that uh, people would be accepting to like a local veg bot scheme or uh, tap up some chefs and see if they're wanting some good fresh produce because um, it's kind of no point if you've got like um, local people not really warming to the idea or, or whatever a lot of the time it's like you 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 find the people they come out the woodwork when you start but think it is nice to know your audience as well and nice to know that you're going to grow it and not waste it um maybe that maybe that but i've got a few more as well which we um i'll let you tap into as well chris um, we can share this one go back and forth on it yeah go on man oh, okay uh my yeah so my, <laughs> my number one sorry would be and this is from complete personal experience but from for a commercial market garden make sure you've got a solid water supply we did 14 months here without a water supply. We did drill, hoping there'll be water underground. There wasn't. Um, we didn't have mains. And we ended up carting water back and forth from a standpipe, like half a kilometre down the road. So that means we were going down with a IBC water tank on the back of a van, filling that up, coming back, pumping that into another water tank. And we'd do that five or six times in order to get enough water in a summer to water like twice a week. So we're doing that probably four or five times a week, which costing us 12 hours a week. Mm. Um, so just to give an idea, if you have a hot summer, that that's how much time you could be not wasting, but spending on just getting water to the farm. And that's not even then watering with it. So I can't stress enough. I would not start a commercial market garden unless I either knew that we could get water from underground and had already done the work to get a borehole or that there's a decent water connection there already um or a ponds that's already full up or whatever and and this got um sort of doubled down for me when we spoke to jm in the last episode because they were taking all their water from um ponds and they had a, a several week drought and their ponds dried up so and then he was yeah having to do what we were doing to, to work doubly hard to to get that really basic need that plants need so yeah my number one, and it'll always be from now on because we're mm. scarred from 14 months, but it's to make sure you've got water. 
Yeah, definitely, mate. Definitely. Um, I would also say I feel I was what gave me the blueprint was doing a course beforehand. So I think you can read all the books, but I think mate, this might be depending on how you learn. Um, mm. But for me, I'm more, vi- I'm a visual learner. So um, as well as I can read books to interpret it, I done Charles Dowding's um, market, well, like his weekend course. And it gave me the blueprint to be like, this is how I set it up. Uh, because before that it was just coming from like allotment knowledge and then trying to scale up to like quarter of an acre which is quite daunting mm. um, and obviously watching loads loads of youtube but i feel like you need that kind of direct um answers from people that have done it before they've laid the path so you don't need to make the same mistakes um so also as well i'm doing jay and forte's course and that is just like an open book of knowledge that i can go through click on crop planning which again is super super important um and i've got all my value for what i paid just out of the crop planning module um, but you can go to um, rocket you can go to tomatoes and if you do it the same way he does you're going to have your own style as well is you kind of guaranteed if the weather goes right and that crop comes through then you're going to be making money um he's kind of set it up for you so you don't need to like just second guess um, so I, I know sometimes it's a bit of an expense, but I do believe in um, investing in in knowledge. Um, but I mean, I, my per- first one was Dowding's weekend course um, and then JM's after my second year. Great tip. Yeah. And, and I think it's an important one because people learn in different ways and I'm the same visual and hands-on is, is an amazing way to go. Um I don't think you can learn how to grow fully from books. Um, no. I think you can have a good base knowledge, but you've got to get your hands dirty and, and learn from people around you. Um, my second tip, I think, would be to study the ground and study the soil, but also to do some do some digging around and find out what was on it before. Um, we moved on to a field with 35 years of monocrop maize production um and whilst i did a bit of digging around before i was excited to get a bit of land and maybe skipped over a few um soil reports and things that really would have if i'd have done that research at the beginning it would have shaped um how i prepared my beds and what i was budgeting for compost to bring in or organic matter to bring in for the no dig beds and those sorts of things so it changed if i'd have known a bit more about how compact it was or where the water runs or how nutritious the soil is those sorts of things um then I would have made slightly different decisions and it would have definitely made my budgets for the commercial side of it a bit um more accurate and then therefore I'd have made made money um made more money so from a commercial point of view it really helps but also really helps for um yeah for knowing how you're going to approach creating no dig beds and and all those different things so yeah definitely study your soil and it's so easy to do literally get a spade dig a big old chunk out and split it in half and have a look you'll see the layers of compaction you'll see how many worms are in there you'll see if it's wet and sticky or dry and crumbly um yeah, it's, it's amazing. I learned quite a lot. I did Neil's Caulfield soil science course um, last year, and I learned a lot about soil science, and it made me really um, passionate about soil 
um, and compost and things. And that um, actually had some active hands-on soil testing um, with him on, on Zoom because of COVID. But um, yeah, and that made me change decisions. And I wish I'd done that when I first even thought about doing this and, and starting a commercial market garden. Yeah, no, you can't, can't agree more. That soil is so important. Um, you've got to get that right because ultimately that is growing everything that you're selling. Um, so mm. that, that that's that, that's the secret sauce under our feet, isn't it, really? Um, I also would say don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, at first, getting volunteers was near impossible because they were just seeing a wet, muddy field and they're like, well, that don't look much fun. But when they see the end product, they were like, oh, I want to come and help now. Um, but it's kind of like just if you can get some friends to, to, to help volunteer, but also speak to other growers about um, where to buy certain bits from because some places would be a lot more expensive than others. A lot of people have already laid the path and it's just um yeah there's there's a lot of hidden costs as well depending on how mm. the growing season is i think if it's super hot you're buying certain things you're buying shade cloths and things but if it's super cold you're buying fleeces and i feel like every season i'm investing in something else that i don't have and i'm like oh god this is an expense as well so yeah i, I would ask other growers and a uh, bit of research as well isn't there mm. to be done yeah, big time. Those hidden costs can be a real hit on your bottom line. And you go in thinking, oh, this market gardening's all right. It can make decent money here. And then, yeah, these things come in and happen. I mean, as we heard from JM, I mention it again, that after a few years does sort of fizzle out and you get a real understanding of your land and understanding of the climate and how Mother Nature's going to try and hit you. And you you haven't, yeah, you then tend to have enough facilities and and products that that cover your back um but we're still getting there aren't we jack so yeah man always i think the initial costs are a little bit a little bit a little bit much but as exactly as you said once the soil improves and you start making compost and you save your money on compost even though or you're just buying in less and less things mm. and it's becoming more and more self-sufficient as well which is, which is great um and that's kind of like the ultimate goal isn't it um yeah so so yeah yeah don't don't be discouraged it does it, it will get better and and, the, and one thing I've, i love about it as well is the challenge as a job like every year is going to throw you something that you're just mm. not ready for and yeah i feel like by the age of 60 i'll be like plant wizard yeah. <laughs> i just really i'd really feel it because I'm like, I'm only 31 and I feel like I'm, I'm gaining some good knowledge, but I'll, I'll never know anything. Nature is like an impossible thing to, to, um, to master. But mm. you, the, the learning process of it is just going to make you an encyclopedia of knowledge. Yeah. And I, I think there's a question about this later, but then when things like the potential food shortages or all the panic buying was going on, there was no veg on the shelves. I wasn't panicking because I'm able with this, the, only the few years I've been doing it, but the skills I've learned to grow food most of the year. Um, yeah. So if, if everything did hit the fan, yeah, it's just that self-sustainability thing. Um, yeah. I think my, my last one would be that not to, 
not to not bite off more than you can chew, but that's certainly something I did. And I got excited. I've got to look at all this space. I've got to fill it all in my first two years. And then I was like, well, to fill it all, I'm going to have to grow things I haven't grown before. And I just got overwhelmed, I think, last year. Um or this season even and was growing things I've never grown before but put in two 30 meter beds of them in without having any experience of growing them I was like hang on this is bonkers so we've got a new system on the farm now that if we haven't grown it before um, we will take a section of our garden grow it personally grow 10 of them or whatever or an allotment like scale or something work out if it grows in our soil, work out if we enjoy growing it, because that's a big, important thing, even on a commercial level, and, and making sure we understand it, how it works. Maybe do one in a pot, one in the ground, one on no dig, one on dug, one with one type of compost. Just play around with it for a season. And if we think it then will work, then we'll grow it commercially. Um, I think that's really made me more excited about growing certain things. Like I, I put in nearly 400 cauliflower plants this year and I've never grown a cauliflower before in my life. And that is the definition of running before you can walk, isn't it? Definitely, man. Yeah, cauliflower is um, it's hard to perfect as well, isn't it? I think. Um, but I think if someone can take away something from you there that is an amazing top tip just like grow like a section of it just make sure you know you can grow it mm. that's a real that's a really good tip like even if you just got like lines and lines of uh 30 inch beds then break one of those beds up into like four, four or five different crops as you said and and just know you can grow it in that soil i think that's a great tip and it's exciting as well. It does mean that you're never, you never deprive yourself growing a type of veg or a type of fruit or a variety because you can just try it without much risk. You can mm. try it and enjoy the process rather than going, oh, I can't grow that because I'm not just going to put in 30 meters of it and it will die. You mm. sort of deprive yourself when you get to that point if you're only doing it for the commercial reasons. But being able to have that little section and just play around and enjoy the, enjoy what I would, what I was doing on my allotment back in the day like that, that sometimes when you do a commercial market garden can fizzle out, you can mm. lose that joy um, because sometimes it's so, yeah, I've got 30 meters of lettuce to eat this week and blah, blah. So yeah, it, it certainly brought back some excitement for me for sure. Nice. Should, should we bring that um, question up, up to the next question uh, from tambling.art um, about the food shortages? Cause we just tapped on it there slightly. So yeah. we'll just, we'll just bring it, we'll bring it, to the forefront um it says uh, your opinions on the food shortages please um how bad do you think it's going to get yeah it, this is a hard one for me to answer jack to be honest because i am um, <laughs> i try to stay out of the news as much as possible because i find it to be um well, a bit too controlled. And I think sometimes we're reading things that, that well, the, you look at the fuel shortages as an example, that was escalated by the media. So I don't read too much on the news, but I think that there are going to be food shortages. I think naturally that will happen because we're seeing yeah. breakdowns of um, lacks of HGV drivers. You've seen it all in the news, right? We've seen this happening. So I think there will be. But I think that the fact that there are people even asking that question, the fact that we've had some amazing growers on this year, that there are more small scale farmers or more people growing on allotments to sell at markets, the small scale growing or farming movement could solve it so well. And I think my main takeaway 
would be to go out, have a look on the CSA website, find a local veg grower, look at local, look at all that farmland you might drive past and go and find the farm shop or go and find the local cheese maker or whatever it is that you want. There will be someone locally growing it in a regenerative way or a sustainable way or just not covered in chemicals. And I think that would, if everyone did that, there wouldn't be food shortages. Yeah. Everyone will like the media are toxic for it. Like Mm. really there was, there was few shortages months ago, but the media say something about it and everyone freaks out and the same will happen with, with this. I mean, it's not like we throw away so much food each year. Um, like just because it doesn't meet just because it didn't meet eu laws or whatever um but you're so right i think local people hold it down like if there was food shortages people could come to me for example and people were saying at the market well are you going to be short of food i was like no because i grow it and it will be (laughs) it will be here it's not like it will just be things like hgv uh shortage of drivers uh, i know we've had a bit of a, a bit of a crap growing season but uh, i just feel maybe mixed with brexit stuff won't be as available but the beautiful thing is we can grow it here we can support local again um we can go back to that uh it's only what we're trying to do is trying to get you guys to grow more food but the, the fact that it be it's put in the psyche as well meaning people can start looking into pickling and being being more resourceful just for the stuff if you've got food now there isn't a food shortages use that food pickle it uh, ferment it dehydrate it um and and it's just old things that grandparents and grandparents before that were doing just naturally um because ultimately if there's going to be like a climate crisis or a huge shift of people moving because of where they live is now too hot too wet because of floods then people are going to need to know this sort of stuff more and more and more Mm. yeah and i know we've spoken about it on the past i'm not going to go on about it too much because then i get called a conspiracy theorist but um it's if you are taught the skills to grow your own food and you grow most of your own food then that is a big chunk of the economy that can't be taxed you you can only be taxed on the food you grow like the food that you buy from a supermarket or a shop um you can't be taxed on the stuff you grow yourself so yeah you can certainly make yourself self-sustainable um and yeah it uh, that's enough said on that i think <laughs> otherwise i'll well, go down uh, a rabbit hole i can't get out of no, 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 <laughs> we won't make it too political and stuff but uh, the beauty of it is it's fun it's fun to grow food. We love it. And we want you to get into it because it's, it's so, it is so fun. It's a great thing to do. It's you're tapping into something beautiful, uh, going back to nature. It's really healthy for you, uh, for your family. And f- yeah, just, it's, and for the planet as well. Mate, it's so fun. Like I took inspiration from your mushroom growing. This is going to lead nicely into the next question, but you were growing mushrooms. You've done amazing with them this year. I was like, got inspired, bought a kit, and have been growing um, white oyster mushrooms for the last couple of weeks. And when they, when they flush, they'd like double in size each night. I'm going there every two hours and looking at these things and they're just getting bigger and bigger. 
And I'm so excited. I feel like a child again when you first grow like crests out of the top of an eggshell or something. It feels like that. It, and it's so fun and it's really, really fun. And, and someone came around and they said, oh, you have to spray them like four times a day. I'm like, yeah, but I don't mind. It's really yeah. exciting to do. So um, that does lead on to our next question quite nicely. At Lunacorn's Garden, what mushrooms and what time of year to grow outdoors in the UK? Um, you grow most of yours indoors, right? Yeah, I grow most of mine indoors, but I li- literally last week just got uh, shiitake dowels. Um, awesome. So, yeah, all, all that means is you need a log that is between two to six weeks old. And I can't remember if it's hardwood or softwood. I, I still need to look it up. I'm pretty sure it's hardwood. Um, I don't want to don't want to get it wrong because I need to just figure it out. And I, luckily, one of my friends, where the shipping container is, where I grow the mushrooms, is a tree surgeon. So there's just piles of logs, which is great. Um, but mm. it's just super simple. You just need to keep that in like a uh, semi-shaded area where it's like, like as it would be in a forest, like maybe under a tree or something. Lean that log up against the tree, and you just drill it. Um, with the right size holes, you hammer in the uh, the dowel, which is covered in like uh, shiitake mycelium. And then I think you just get a little wax and just cap it off. And then the shiitake mycelium will take over the energy of that log over um, maybe like a six to eight month period. And then you'll just get flushes and flushes of shiitake mushrooms. Um, so that is a really, really cool um way to grow mushrooms outdoors in the uk there's loads of information on it online um but that's kind of like the basis of it really yeah and it, i think it's exciting i think growing mushrooms indoors is super exciting but what we can do outside and the fact that they flush and flush and flush up we've t- spoken about a film before um and i need you to remind me of what it was really good permaculture film the guy was just had stacks of logs in the woods and was growing mushrooms for ages you yeah remember what the film was yeah it's called inhabit that was it great yeah um inhabit a permaculture film i think it's called permaculture movie something like that no a permaculture story that's what mm. i see it um really great like permaculture film as they go that is number one um there's just so many ways people are using permaculture in low loads of different ways um philosophies for it uh really amazing but yeah that guy doing it in the woods super inspiring um and yeah just another pilot question. I've just realized it said what time of the year to grow in the outdoors. And um, it's, I'm going to do it soon, but like if it's six to eight months, you kind of want the weather to be like uh, autumn. So maybe do it in spring for autumn flushes. Mm. um, So that it's just optimal temperatures for those shiitake to flush. So yeah, look at springtime, six to month, eight months beforehand. And yeah, I'd get it done then. So yeah, winter, spring is a great time to do it. Perfect. Something I really want to play around with next year. I'm quite excited you've got those shiitake mushroom things. You can be my uh, guinea pig again, and then I'll get inspired by you and get involved. No problem. Um, next one, Laudine Timber. Uh, if you could only grow one crop, what crop would it be? This is like the hardest question on the list, I think. It's, it should just be like, just say a veg and be done with it but that this got sent over on friday uh, the other day friday i think it was and i've been wrecking my brains because i've kind of 
I love tomatoes and I think like that's like the obvious one to say, but I kind of fell out of love with them this year because it they got blight. And I was just like, Ugh. prima donnas, aren't they? They are fussy. <laughs> so fussy. They need so much work. And it's like real disappointment if it doesn't come through. But I think like everyone's grower's answer would be tomatoes. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, trying to think what, what I get the most pleasure out of growing. How about you, Chris? Can I throw it over to you first? Or? Yeah. I think I, um, I've been thinking about it since I read it. I think I'd have to go lettuce. And I think people will find that boring, but there's two reasons. One, it's commercially. It would mean I could continue growing. Like I could keep this, this venture on, on going, keep this train going because it's, it gains a very good price. And if you were to look at spreadsheets for farms like mine, you would wonder why people don't just grow lettuce and salad mixes because that is, it's yeah, a really good return on it. The other thing is that I think it, it I can grow it most of the year round with a little bit of protection. I think that's quite cool. I think that there are a lot of crops that are very seasonal and yes, the flavor of lettuce changes as you get or mi mixed salad more than just lettuce, but yeah, mixed salad. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's something that you can grow most of the year round. The flavors change as you go through, it gets bitter in the cold. I think I would have to pick, yeah, mixed salad or lettuce. Um, yeah. Yeah. But then I've saying that I've also got sick of eating it this year. So I've yeah. grown so much. I'm tired of eating it. I think it for, for me this year, I'd be like, oh, I let the mushrooms, I feel the mush <laughs> just because it's been so fun to grow and they're like little aliens. Um, yeah. yeah, really cool. But I think, I mean, like, yeah, if it was down to money, it probably would be like tomatoes or, or like, salad yeah you're right it would be something like that and, and with salad you could make it prettier by doing loads of different varieties you could do it all year round so yeah so great shout i feel like it's a boring answer but um yeah i think we're just going to kind of agree with that one well i've just moved another question up another one from tamberlane.art but it's the best foods to pickle or jar um, and also for Christmas presents. And for me, that was tomatoes this year. I've literally just done another batch of like eight jars of tomato chutney. Um, I think I've got 20 jars of tomato <laughs> chutney now. So look out if you're listening and you, you're uh, expecting a Christmas present this year because it might be chutney. But um, <laughs> I'm, I've loved it. I've loved pickling that. and well, Not pickling, but jarring that, making that. And I just realised the green tomato chutney I did in the last batch was our tomatoes, our garlic and our onions. Nice. And I think the only thing in it that wasn't obviously vinegar, but other than that was ginger. And I did buy that, but I'm going to grow that next year. And that just, yeah, it was so nice to eat that and think, right, well, I've got my tomatoes, which I know taste nice. We've got them for the rest of the winter, basically, um, in this in this preserved form. Um, so, yeah, tomatoes is actually a really good answer to that previous question from Lowell Timber um, for this next question. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, pickle, like obviously courgettes you have coming out your bloody ears um, mm. in the summer. And I had a courgette chutney once and it was so good. It was just insane. Wow. Just Never that thought on, of that. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. Um, and it was just on crackers. I was just eating mm. it and eating it and eating it. It was really good. Um, but yeah, chutneys and, and things like that, they need to like really come back mm. with a bang because you're just turning like so – this is another thing as well. 
I'd love to have someone on board that just done this because you turn a cabbage into a product that's something that's relatively cheap and you've just added a couple of quid on it once you jar it and turn it into sauerkraut or kimchi. Um, so you're just making those products more high value um, and they, they're obviously better for your gut. Something that's really rife in the UK is terrible gut health. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably down to like lack of good bacteria and loads of other anomalies. Probably pesticides is one of them as well, Yeah, um, which I've, I've read into. Um, so, yeah, there's so many cool things you can do with food like we're growing it but then ultimately you've got chefs doing really cool stuff with our food you could pickle it jar it ferment it dry it make it last for ages you can freeze it um smoothies soups like it's just endless mm. isn't it um but yeah there's a few good christmas presents in there for sure isn't it yeah definitely i mean i'd love that if i got some homemade homegrown then homemade stuff like that another one that we did for christmas presents was slows um like getting slow berries you can find them pretty much anywhere i don't know if they're just coming to the end or if there's still some kicking about but um picking them and then putting them into gin and making slow gin over like eight months and then having that as a christmas present for the year after was incredible um we've just pickled some savoy cabbage i mean if you've never pickled anything before radishes is one of the quickest and easiest thing to pickle and they will change any salad if you think this is a boring salad chuck some pickled radishes on which you can pickle in like an hour yeah um, and they're so tasty and you'll be addicted after that i think my favorite thing to do uh in terms of sauce is like a chili sauce or a chili jam mm. uh, you can really elevate it. and i made it last year with uh, tomatoes uh tomatoes were like the base of it uh, like my chilies um but a little bit of um apples apple juice in it just made this sauce just through the roof so um yeah there's also that's that's my little christmas gift if i was giving them out chili chili sauce lovely love it all right where so i just lost um yep another one from um at turnbull uh turbulane.art if you moved another country to farm which country would you pick and why well i like this one <laughs> i like it of because i've done a lot of traveling as well <laughs> um so i'm interested to know what you you yours is chris before i answer <laughs> i was gonna say the same thing um i haven't well I've, I've been around a bit um i've traveled a little bit but it was before like i was considering doing this and considering it as like a farm i've always wanted to do it but never thought it was viable so i haven't seen that many options but one thing i did think of when i saw this question was that i am very envious of the markets that they have in like north america or canada and yeah. i think that i think canada with it being fairly close to our climate in the summer and that they all take the winters off. So, <laughs> so they take the winters off because it's so cold and that they have basically markets set up on most doorsteps that are like seven days a week and everyone's passionate about food at those markets. You have a route to sell basically set up there and you wouldn't necessarily even have to have a CSA or anything. You could just set up that market a couple of times a week, make a nice tidy living and have three months off a year. That sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think you've you've definitely changed my mind there it's like if it 
because I, I've li- I've worked on farms in Australia and you are challenging uh, the heat. We're in like eight month droughts. But what what I like about the hot countries is you're getting um, different types of tropical fruits. Um, some things you don't even have to worry about, like tomatoes. Like the, you're not what bothering putting a polytunnel up you're just still you're planting it outside uh, but then i think those countries also lack like like spinach you're trying to take the heat off it where here we ain't got to worry about that um i was lucky enough to do a permaculture course in costa rica and they grew like some amazing stuff so costa rica is like super optimal for more permaculture but i think doing what we're doing i think you're right we do watch a lot of american stuff and it is the access to markets and there seems to be they've got like in certain places a lot of people move to tennessee as well um that i know in the growing world and they're just having like a ball with um some of the markets but also the optimal temperatures i think it can mm. be quite wet there as well but um yeah I just I just think you're bang on. If you've got a good market, people get the CSA model. Um, people really understand microgreens out there, and then just yeah, you, you you're rolling. I mean, everywhere has its challenges, though. As you've hit the nail on the head, there, mate, haven't you? It's, it's everywhere's got different challenges. Some places we're putting up polytunnels and then fleecing everything down from October, and other places are like no polytunnels and having to put up like polytunnel frames with shade cloth over to keep the heat down so everywhere's got its challenges um yeah i would mind it I, I wouldn't mind if i wouldn't mind be staying here but let's just level it out a bit yeah let's not just have like a mega dry summer then a mega wet summer <laughs> let's just level yeah. it out a bit <laughs> that'd uh, be nice I, I agree man i think we're actually really lucky here like when i think mm. of growing i'm like oh i do really like the uk i know we have feel like we have like nine months of winter and like a shorter summer but I think like, we're used to how much it rains. We're used to this cold. I, I do like growing in polytunnels as well. Mm. Um, uh, and, yeah. And I think the challenge here is like a fun challenge for us. So, um, yeah, I, I like visiting those places, but probably farming there would be a different story. Definitely. Um, another question from Tamblaine. Should I cover my allotment in a thick layer of lead? leaves to suppress weeds over winter so it's a good question leading on from the last one yes um that's just a categorical yes and it's not just for like weed suppression it's to feed that bed with like a really rich rich um carbon source um they you pick up any leaves on the pavement i guarantee there's worms under them uh they've somehow got their um i've even i uh, was in london the other day just uh moved some leaves and there was worms like just there and you just think that that that's a really rich source of like what that tree's just shed and it's breaking down um i would i'm actually going to do it on my farm it's just cover the beds in leaves and then tarp them um and yeah it's just incorporating that good organic matter but it, you, you're right it's doing the job of so weed seeds don't fly into the bed but yeah it's a big, big yes for me. Yeah, any mulch you can get your hands on and, we, and leaves are free. Um, and we're, we're really, it's strange here. We've got trees surrounding, but they they don't really blow into our field. So I don't have many leaves or access to many leaves unless I go and collect them. But I'm very jealous of people that have 
good access to to lots of leaves for those sorts of things but also just collect them all up and, and make a really good leaf mold um for seedlings in the future and those sorts of things so if you've got loads of leaves get online and have a look at the uses for them because there is insane amounts of uses they are an amazing source of of um, nutrients and yeah many many uses they, they, they take a, a little bit longer to break down, but these, these mm. really good videos on like having just like a, a leaf mold um, only area in on your patch, um, like with like chicken wire and a couple of steaks. Um, I'm not really yeah. a big fan of putting them in plastic bags, even though that's one. It's just, it just seems to be a bit silly to use plastic unnecessarily. No. Uh, but I think it would be great. I've seen like, if I had like a leaf blower that sucked in and mulched it to make like a, um, <laughs> like I saw a TED, there's a whole TED talk on this, by the way, which you've got, oh, wow. there's a guy and he was talking about um, leaves um, being like um, black gold, but he was like talking about leaf blowers. And I think in America, cause I've honestly, I've looked here and unless they're petrol, you can't you can't get a battery one. You could definitely get one plugged in, but I don't really rate them. If you get, like the petrol ones, if you suck it in and it comes with a bag, it mulches it as it sucks it back up into the bag. So um, yeah, so you've got like finer um, leaf um, matter, and that is that's going to be perfect. You've already helped the breakdown massively. So um, I would look into that, or just place them out on a lawn and run them over with a lawnmower. Mm. Yeah, that's going to speed it up. I mean, you only have to, the answers to these sorts of questions, I'm going to look up that TED Talk, by the way, but the answers to these sorts of questions are, if you just look at a forest floor or a rainforest floor, especially like even the woods here, like how does it, how does a woods keep being so fertile and keep having thousands of species per square metre? It's from not just this, but one of those things is, is, the trees drop leaves they naturally break down on the on the floor which refill feeds other species or plants in around that area which then help feed the tree back up and there's just a cycle that happens and if we can sort of learn from that and hack it a little bit onto our farms or allotments or gardens then it can only be right surely yeah it's a, uh, the the model of like the torus which is uh, the same shape as is found in the universe, the Earth's magnetic field, but also a tree, how the energy comes from the center, goes out into the trees, drops, goes back into the roots, back into the center. Yeah. Like a, like how you would slice an apple core and you mm. can see that, see that shape. That shape is like everywhere in the, in the universe and it's like a natural law. Um, so, yeah, uh, I was just trying to highlight you, what you said about how the trees keep themselves fertile. Um, but yeah, that is just an awesome mulch. So I think we both are very much in agreement on that one. Yeah, big thumbs up. Big, big thumbs up. Right, so the last one is just asking again from uh, tamberlane.art, um, and that is plant beans and peas now or next year? Um, for me, I'm not. It's one of those ones that I've decided not to do next year. Um, but that's just personally because um, I'm trying to scale back a couple of crops and those are ones that I really do not enjoy harvesting. <laughs> um, and so they didn't make it this year. Um, 
but I have seen, especially broad beans, like late October, beginning November, I've seen really good results from that. Although last year it was really wet, so it took a lot longer for them to be ready. But October, November times will give you a crop in March, April, May sorts of times, depending on the year. So broad beans is a really good one. And they are, as we are just talking about fertility, they're amazing for um, using as a green manure, really, or just using to put um, fertility and nutrients back into soil where you might have had heavy feeders the year before. So um, definitely broad beans. I don't have much experience with peas, to be honest. What about you, mate? Yeah, I love peas, um, but I would suggest, I think the only thing you would plant now would be broad beans. Um, I had really terrible luck with them last year because it was so cold. My place seems to drop a couple of degrees less than what the town uh, would say on my maps yeah. just because of a bit of open field and they just got smashed by the frost um so it would be something i would only st- i would start in like early spring um but yeah i i'm not oh I, I wouldn't overwinter them personally but next year i do love growing peas and i like growing beans as well um again for that fertility in the serpent uh, legumes on the plot mm. peas are just for me this what that is top three for best tasting crop yeah um just fresh peas are just another level um so yeah i would wait till next year for that early spring um and yeah just beans dizzy so this is another little tip that i do and it's like with french dwarf beans i will actually plant a couple around like um, like a winter squash plant or courgette plants. And I mean, yes. this is great if you're doing this in like a permaculture-esque way, but that plant, don't expect anything from it. Just plant it around and the um, it's going to be like a nitrogen fixer for the courgette slash winter uh, squash. Um, and you're just going to see the health in the leaves come back. Um, it's just great. And then ultimately sometimes if you have a little look under the leaves you've just got a couple of beans there as well mm. um so yeah it's something i learned like last year and i've i've was like i've always taken it with me and i think it's a cool little it's again it's mixing with a three sisters model isn't it it's just missing corn in that one yeah um which i, I love and old ancient indigenous techniques to grow abundance it makes complete sense. It really does. And it's um, a no brainer. Something that I got, um, it was on that Niels Caulfield course. And he said, just when you've got the, one of those field beans is sort of flourishing, pull it up out of the ground. I know this seems like sacrilege to some people, but pull it up out of the ground. If you can sacrifice one plant and have a look at the root system, because you'll see these tiny little nodules on there. And I can't remember the exact name for them because I'm terrible. My memory's not good, but it's basically the little nodules that is get nitrogen fixing the ground. And you'll see this on most legumes and it's those that are so beneficial and they look really, really cool. Um, so yeah, definitely if you've got sort of one that you, you're willing to sacrifice, pull it up and have a look because you'll see directly the little nodules on there that are doing amazing things for your soil. And especially, yeah, planting them around squash or courgettes or those sorts of things that are notoriously heavy feeders is, um, well, yeah, they take a lot from the soil. No brainer, mate. Yeah. No, I'm, g- I'm glad we've touched base on that, even though it's like answering a question, but giving that little bit extra about those two crops. Um, so, yeah. This has been really cool, man. I, I do love answering these questions because I think it gives us an outlet to vent 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I always enjoy it because it makes me feel a little bit of confidence, you know, like sometimes you go, oh yeah, I remember doing that. And then it makes me like, I've written down some of the things that you've said and some of the things that I've said. I mean, I need to get better at writing things down throughout the season so that I remember that I actually do know some of this stuff <laughs> rather than doubting yourself. No, I really enjoyed it. Thanks everyone who sent in a question. Um, we uh, have thoroughly enjoyed it and we will do more of these. If you do want direct access to ask us questions, though, you can get that through our Patreon page. Thank you everyone that's joined. You get exclusive looks and first access to a lot of our videos. Like we put the complete unedited John Martin 48 video up on there. Um, and with certain tiers, you can just directly ask us questions on Patreon and we'll get back to you. So you don't have to wait for one of these episodes. So it's patreon.com forward slash food grower academy. Anyway, it's been an amazing season. Cheers, Jack. Um, I'm going to go and take a little holiday, have a little break. <laughs> no, cheers, <laughs> and, uh, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for all the hard work and all, your, all the editing too, that you do. Thank um, you. But yeah, beautiful season wicked people we love you all and thanks for listening guys because you're 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 in there for the long haul you're getting involved with the long form content and we're we're really excited when we see um the feedback as well so really appreciate the reviews as well um and we will look forward to season two yeah some big names coming on some great guests so uh yeah don't think we're going away we're not we'll be back cheers jack take care mate cheers chris bye-bye